Let's turn to Isaiah 6 again. And having uh, spent quite a few weeks looking at the uh, description uh, before us of God in the temple, sitting on his throne, um, we now this week get to look at Isaiah's reaction and response and what happens to him in light of that vision. So we'll just read through the passage again through to verse 7 now and then we'll pray and then we'll study. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study tonight that you would speak to each and every one of us through your word. May it be your truth and your words that impact us by the illumination of your Holy Spirit. May we see your truth and may your truth change us, Lord, we pray. Amen. So we are in this vision of uh, Isaiah. He's uh, seeing a vision of the future of the temple of God upon earth and of the Lord sitting on his throne. He's high and lifted up as his rightful place and the seraphim are there ministering and uh, covering the holiness of God. And they proclaim one to another, perhaps it's two seraphim or two groups of seraphim, but they call across and they say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Referring then to the future time when that will be true and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the earth was filled with smoke and so the the foundations are shaking at the declaration of God's holiness and of his glory and the house is filled with smoke the manifestation of the presence of God and there's a lot of detail in there that we've spoken about I think for about four weeks now and uh we will take much of that as said and little bits of it will come back as we move forwards. But tonight we really want to look at Isaiah's response. Up until this point, really, it's almost as if he's not there. We're looking at the scene, we're looking at God, we're looking at uh, the angelic beings, uh, the seraphim. We're looking at all that is going on. We're getting a picture. And now Isaiah responds to what he's seen. And his response is simply, woe is me. 
If you want a very loose paraphrase translations, it would be uh, basically I'm done for. I'm lost, he says. Undone is the traditional uh, translation. The, the word here, uh, and woe is, by the way, before we move on from woe, woe is, um, and I think we're familiar with this from elsewhere, but we saw, um, well, let's, let's start with the New Testament. The New Testament, we're familiar with the woes. You know, in, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus speaks the woes against the Pharisees. Woe to you, O Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. Woe to you for this and woe to you for that. Those woes are, are statements of judgment. And, and that's very much, as those of you who've been coming regularly will know, in chapter 5, following the Song of the Vineyard, the response is woes. There's woe, woe. Uh, and then therefore, woes and therefores, we spent quite a lot of weeks on them, where God then brings judgment upon Israel because of Israel's sin. It's important that we understand the woe in the context of Isaiah 5 to see how it's used in Isaiah 6. Remember, we, we often hear talk about intertextuality, the Bible ref in books referring to other books, previous books and what have you. But there's also inner textuality, where we're looking at how the same author is using the same words and concepts as he develops his argument. So in chapter 5, with the song of the vineyard, the vineyard, as you know, should have produced fruit. It, everything that it needed to produce fruit was given to it, and it didn't. And therefore, the judgment against the vineyard is going to be that all the blessings and protections that it had that should have allowed it to produce good fruit are going to be removed to the extent that it won't be allowed to produce fruit at all. It's a judgment upon them. And that uh, statement of judgment is then followed by this very prolonged passage of judgment, run, running from Isaiah 5 and verse 8, right the way through um, to the end of the chapter, pretty much, where there are woes and therefores. God says to you, woe for you've done this. Woe for you because you've done this. Therefore, I'm going to respond in this way. Therefore, I'm going to do this to you. And that's where it's been. So, so the word woe is very much in mind in the context of Isaiah. It's just the immediate preceding uh, passage before chapter 6. And God says, because you, Israel, have done this, because you have produced bad fruit, woe to you. I'm going to judge you. Woe for you have, you have sinned, therefore I will judge. So when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, says, woe is me, he is proclaiming judgment on himself. He's not just saying, oh dear, I'm in, I'm in a pickle here, aren't I? He, he's saying, woe, judgment upon me. I am proclaiming my own judgment upon myself because having seen God, I'm aware of my own state. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But he is proclaiming judgment. God doesn't need to proclaim judgment. Isaiah can do it all by himself. But more than that even, in, the, in light of the context of Isaiah 5, it seems to me here as if Isaiah is associating himself with Israel. And I know that, as I keep saying to you, the first five chapters are our prologue. They're our setup. They're the building blocks and the foundations to understand this crucial uh, introductory uh, chapter. Um, but I, it's ironic that the way it's structured, we have Isaiah saying, woe to you Israel, woe to you Israel, woe to you Israel, and then boom, now, woe to me. 
He's associating himself with Israel. He is representing Israel, if you like. As Israel is being judged, he is part of that nation, and he, like them, is worthy of that judgment. And that's important for us to know, because, as I've said to you multiple times already, and I, and I, I kind of want to teach Romans now once I've finished Isaiah, because more and more I'm seeing that the, the structure of Romans in the early chapters is very much based on the structure of Isaiah in the early chapters. Isaiah begins with condemnation before he can deal now in chapter 6 with the means of redemption, just like Paul does in the book of Romans. And in the same way that Paul in the book of Romans, he deals with the degrees of revelation and the degrees of sinfulness and then brings judgment Isaiah's the guy who you think, well, he's a prophet of God, he's a decent guy, he, you know, God wouldn't call a, you know, some sort of ragamuffin, you know, he's, he, he's, he's one of the better ones. Yes, he is one of the better ones, but woe is me. He, he's not the one, as far as I understand it, who, who's going to, there's no evidence that Isaiah has a history of idolatry personally, but he understands that he is worthy of judgment as much as those in Israel who do. And again, we have these graduated degrees where even those who consider themselves more righteous, when they see God and his holiness, realize that they are worthy of judgment. And so Isaiah proclaims this judgment upon himself. Now, we see in this chapter the... Uh, the formation of the gospel, not the gospel itself. I think the gospel itself comes through very clearly in chapter 53. But here we have the, the building blocks that are going to, Isaiah is going to take us through to chapter 53 with these blocks here in this introductory chapter, um, this foundational chapter. And I think it's very interesting that the beginning of Isaiah's redemption is not God saying, woe to you, it's him saying, woe to me. And for us, that is really the beginning of salvation. Whomever we are, whatever our background, whether we're rebellious and wicked and in idolatry, or whether, like Isaiah, we're considered one of the better members of society, the reality is, is that salvation begins with repentance, and repentance begins with acknowledgement of our sin. Simple as that. It's very crucial, I think, in the whole panning out of this passage that Isaiah is the one who brings judgment. He sees God, and in seeing God, he brings judgment on himself. And I think that that is a crucial thing. So having said, woe is me, he then says, for I am lost. The for here is important. This is the reason that he brings judgment on himself. He recognizes that he is lost. As I said, the, the, traditionally, we, uh, um, this is rendered undone. The word literally, in this context, almost certainly, means to be put out of existence or utterly destroyed. So I think that kind of lost or undone, they can sound fairly moderate and mild words in English, but um, in in the original, the, I think the, the rendering is somewhat stronger. He says, I am destroyed. Judgment upon me. I'm going to be destroyed. I'm in a state of judgment. But what is very interesting as well, particularly in light of what he's about to say about his lips, is that this word has another meaning. In this context, obviously, utterly destroyed. 
is very appropriate. But the word in other contexts can also mean silent. Can also mean silent. And many here think that Isaiah is deliberately doing a bit of a, a double entendre. He's, he's basically having this double meaning that uh, is deliberate here. In that Isaiah, uh, who is utterly destroyed, judgment upon him for his sinful state, that while the angelic beings are saying, holy, 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 he can't. He's not fit to be there. He is silent. And that, that theme, that concept of silence is appropriate for it spreads on into the next statement. He says, for I am, I am destroyed, I am silent, for, this is the reason I'm silent, this is the reason I'm destroyed, for I am a man of unclean lips. So I, I think with these fours, you can almost have a flow chart with a bunch of arrows going along, you know? It's like, woe is me, arrow, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm under judgment is because I'm utterly destroyed. I'm to be put out of existence. I'm silent in the face of this holiness. Why? Why am I silent? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. So the reason for him to be judged, the reason for him to be, um, to be destroyed, the reason that he can't join in with this throng is not because he doesn't agree. It's not because he doesn't think God is holy. It's not because he doesn't see that the earth is full of his glory. The reason he, he, he cannot speak, he cannot join in, the reason for his silence in this regard is because he recognizes that he is unworthy and unfit to be in the presence of God. His lips can't join in with the praise because his lips are unclean. He's not fit to praise God. He's not fit to be there. We're used to the word unclean in reference to lepers and leprosy. Same word was used of lepers in the Old Testament. And he is one of unclean lips. And so it is that um, Isaiah, he sees God, he recognizes his judgment. There is... Um, there is a principle at work here, and that principle is this, that only when we see God's holiness can we fully see our own sinfulness. The clearer we see the holiness of God, remember we, we talked about that word holy, God being separate, beyond, you know, far removed from us and our sinfulness and, and our state. And when we see who God is, his holiness and his glory, then in that situation, we become more aware of our sinfulness. And this is why I keep saying to you guys, I keep, as I'm preaching through the word, when we just, when we just bask in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we don't need to have sermons that say, here's three steps to this and four steps to that. When we, when we consider who Christ is, when we get to see him more clearly, when we see him better, then we become more aware of our sinful state and our need for him. It's a natural and normative response. And, uh, I think the great example of this is found in the book of Job. If you remember in the book of Job, um, Job at the beginning of the book is volunteered twice by God to Satan. Have you, have you considered my servant Job? He's like the, the worst ever wingman, you know? Hey, have you considered my servant Job? Have a look at him. And what does he say about Job? He says that there's no one like him. 
You, you understand the concept of there being no one like Job? That's the principle of holiness. Nothing, no one like him, set apart. There's no one like him. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns from evil. And God presents Job in that way. Job is a holy man. Job is an upright man. Job is a blameless man. Job fears God. Job turns from evil. He is saved and he's one of the best, if not the best, that God had on the earth at that time. And yet after everything happens, after all that trauma, after all that suffering, what does Job say after God shows up at the end of the book? He says, I had heard you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself. Or to put it more accurately, woe is me. Job 42, 5 to 6. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing in that there, there is Job, he's seeing God, and then the man who was described as being so holy beforehand, he says, I don't really know you. But now that I know you, therefore, I now know myself better. Now I see your holiness more clearly. I see my sinfulness more clearly. And that is very much what is happening with Isaiah here. And I think that this is a problem that we have in our lives that is relatively easily rectified. And that is, is that sometimes we're not bothered about what God thinks. We're not bothered about the effects of sin. We're not bothered about the neglect of God because we don't recognize who God is and what he's done. And that is why, folks, it's so important that we spend this time in this kind of passage. It's so important that we understand the, the, the future exaltation of Christ. You know, when we sang that hymn again this morning with those additional verses that have been written, uh, all creatures of our God and King, we sang this morning. And in that last verse of the, uh, the as I say, the last couple of verses are, are more modern. But then it says, who then shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King. Everyone will fall on bended knee. It always gets to me that part, you know, it's, it's based on Philippians 2 and, and this concept that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There will be a time when we are here, like Isaiah, in the presence of God and our knees will bow and our tongues will confess and say, you are Yahweh, I have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts, and will acknowledge him. And the only question is, is will we be judged or will we be atoned for? That's the question. Will we be, have a right to be there or will we have, a, no, have no right to be there? And people are distracted by the world. We're distracted by the world from, uh, and, from, uh, and by our own sin and by the enemy from seeing God's holiness, seeing who he is. Do you know, an evangelistic rally would be very different, wouldn't it? If everybody was taken, as Isaiah was, to the throne room of God. It could change the hardest of hearts, could it not? I present to you Exhibit A, the Apostle Paul, Saul, 
as he was known by his Hebrew name, going around slaughtering, murdering Christians for being blasphemers of God. And then Saul, like Isaiah, is given a vision of the exalted Christ. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He sees that the one on the throne was indeed Christ, this one whose followers he was persecuting, and thus, by implication, the one, the ones he was, uh, the one he was indeed persecuting directly as well. And so, I think that if we see the presence of God as much as it transforms Paul, it will transform all of us. Now, most <laughs> we're not going to get to see that vision. <laughs> that was a rare and precious thing. But what we can do is we can look at the glory of God, study the glory of God, read passages like this, consider the glory of God, remember who he is, not get distracted by this temporary physical realm, but understand that one day we will all stand before him and our knees will bow and our tongues will confess. And every day that we don't do that now is a wasted day. So he says, uh, Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. It's interesting to me with this unclean lips as well that we have a situation whereby um, he specifically refers to his lips. He is aware of his sinfulness in the realm of his lips. Everything else is sinful. <laughs> his arms are sinful, his legs are sinful, his head's sinful, everything's sinful, his fingers are sinful. But he sees the sin on his lips and that's going to be relevant as we progress on so he sees that he is to be judged he pronounces judgment upon himself he uh he recognizes that he will be destroyed that he has nothing to say because he is a man of unclean lips he sees his own sin but secondly and this is very relevant under the old covenant he says and his reason too i dwell with a people in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, he's not just going to be judged because of his own sin, but he's going to be judged for the sin of Israel. When God came to judge Israel, everybody suffers. Were there some righteous people in Israel at the time the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple? Absolutely. Of course there were righteous people. God is very, very clear when he speaks to Elijah on this point. He says there are always a remnant. There will always be a remnant. God always has a remnant. He always has those who remain faithful. One of the faithful remnant at the time of the captivity into Babylon was Daniel. The fact that Daniel was a holy man, the fact that Daniel was a man who uh, worshipped God and loved God and was faithful to God is abundantly clear. He's one of the very few chap uh, characters in the Bible of, of whom nothing bad is said. He, uh, and Daniel, as a teenager, maybe late teens, that kind of age, the sort of time that you leave high school and you go off to college, Daniel uh, was taken off to college as well. He didn't get to choose where he went. He was taken forcibly and he was enrolled in a, a course on astrology at the school of Babylon. And the fees were paid for by, if you pardon me for being frank, his testicles. When they were taken into captivity, he would have been made a eunuch. And uh, I, think, I think 
any, any man of a young age would be, or any age would be aware of quite what a, a thing that is. But the idea was is that he wouldn't therefore be tempted or led astray, uh, wouldn't cause any trouble in the court and could be trusted with the, uh, the king's wives and, and what have you. And he would be there completely focused on his studies and be trained to be the creme de la creme of Babylonian culture. And yet in the midst of all of that, he remained faithful to God. Why did Daniel go through such a judgment? Was it for his sin? Yes and no. Predominantly, it's because he was in the midst of his people. His nation was judged, and he was part of that nation. The judgment came upon them as a whole. Why, why would that be appropriate, we would think? Because we're used to this concept of individuality. But God made a covenant with the nation. You as a nation must obey, or you as a nation will be punished. And there will always be people who were loving God and worshipping God and following God in the midst of uh, idolatry and sinfulness, who are going to get caught up in God's wrath, so to speak. In, in a loose sense, you could almost refer to it as collateral damage, that kind of thing. But what Isaiah shows us clearly, as Isaiah is a Daniel-type figure, I think, in this picture, is that not only is he dwelling with a people of unclean lips, but he himself has unclean lips. When we suffer injustice in this world, things that happen to us that aren't fair or we didn't deserve, ultimately we did, in another sense. In that judgment is finding a worthy head when it falls on us because we too have unclean lips and so isaiah recognizes in that moment his sin as an individual and the sinfulness of his nation that he represents and again along with the reference to woe hear him talking about dwelling in the midst of the people i think it becomes clear that isaiah is essentially here representative of israel and that's going to become really important as we move on and if you're doing that mental flowchart in your head four 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 woe is me for i am lost I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For, he's your last for, and this is the reason that he sees his uncleanliness. This is the reason that he um, is aware of the righteousness of him being judged. For mine eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. And again, that phrase, Yahweh of hosts, that's the phrase that the angels say. He can't say holy, holy, holy with them, but he can repeat who this is. This is Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of the uh, angelic realm, the one who is distinct above all angelic beings, that even the mighty, great, scary, dangerous seraphim, those exalted holy beings, that even they are covering themselves before Yahweh of hosts. He is beyond them all. And so he says, I've seen this. I've seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. And as we said, there's the, the parallel with Job. Job sees God and he despises himself. Isaiah sees Yahweh and he says, woe is me. Just a, one other thing to note here is this. 
that Isaiah, he's seen this Yahweh of hosts, but he recognizes that he's seen the king. This is going to be important to us because as we go through the book of Isaiah, we will see the journey of this king. We will see the story of this king. We will see that this is, uh, the king is the promised Messiah. And so Isaiah 6 is problematic, in, well, it's problematic in many regards, in the sense that it, pre, it prompts issues that have to then later be resolved. But one issue is this, is that Isaiah speaks of Yahweh raising up a king, of God raising up a king. And yet here, Yahweh is the king. So we have a king who, who is God, and yet we have a king who is distinct from God. And here, even in the Old Testament, we have you know, this, this whole idea that the, the, the Trinity is a New Testament concept really isn't strictly true. The idea that, that the Father and the Son are one God and yet distinct persons is in multiple places in the Old Testament and multiple places in the book of Isaiah. And here is just one of them. And so we have the king here and the king, Isaiah is seeing the king in his exalted state. But you know, the, this king is seen previously, has been seen previously in the Old Testament. The king uh, was seen in uh, the book of Genesis. Jacob uh, has a vision and he wrestles with God. And uh, then in uh, the book of Judges, Gideon sees the angel of the Lord. And when Gideon sees the angel of the Lord, he uh, again is, is aware of his own state he thinks he's going to die and then when samson is born funnily enough in the book of judges samson's parents have a visit from the angel of the lord and again when they realize that the angel of the lord is the one who's visited them they think they're going to die the difference is is that the angel of the lord came in a state that wasn't exalted here we have the king the lord of hosts in his exalted state. And I think it's very, very clear to us with hindsight that this one is the Messiah, that this is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ. And when he appeared to Jacob, when he appeared to Gideon, when he appeared to Simeon, he was unembodied and temporarily took bodily form in the way that angels do when angels come to visit. Hence, angel of the Lord, messenger of the Lord. But here, he is no longer that. Here he has become a man, he will forever remain a man, and he is yet nevertheless in a glorified state that places him above the entire angelic realm. That's really quite a significant statement. That, that Jesus, remember what we said before, Elohim means God and the gods that this and these angelic beings and that Yahweh is the Lord of hosts, angelic hosts. He is the he is Yahweh of the angelic realm. That's his realm. So Jesus has always existed, right? So he's been in that angelic realm. Hence, when he comes to the earth in the Old Testament, he's referred to often as the angel of the Lord. He is part of that realm. But with the incarnation, you see I'm getting Christmassy here now already. With the incarnation, he becomes man. 
Now, we always think of that in the sense of him leaving behind his glory into this humble estate. But he's gone from the realm of the Elohim to the realm of man. He's taken on human form and he will always, for eternity, be a man. As well as God, as well as divine, but he will be a man. And here, this man is exalted. And it becomes, it's not so clear in Isaiah's text, but when Ezekiel deals with the same vision, it becomes clear he sees a man. When Daniel gets involved, the man is very clear there. The son of one, like a son of man, comes and is seated on the throne and given all power and authority. And so, Jesus here, as a man, is exalted above. He is Yahweh of the angelic realm. He, a man, rules the angelic realm. Mankind is lifted above the angelic realm. You will be lower than the angels for a while, for a little while. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul even says to them, don't you know that one day you will judge the angels? The whole of mankind is raised up above the angelic realm. It's just a fascinating, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. It's a fascinating area we mustn't get distracted in, but it just goes to show you that here with the exalted Christ, we have uh, an astonishing accompli accomplishment that has happened um, in, in the, in the uh, f mindset of Isaiah. This is the Messiah seated on the throne and he is worthy and he is holy and Isaiah isn't. So then in verse 6, in verse 6, we see then what happens. Now we've, we've given you plenty of spoilers on this, so most of you are well aware of what's going on here. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Okay? This is a tricky verse in many ways that you probably haven't even noticed before. Firstly, when people picture seraphim and cherubim, it's very difficult. <laughs> in Ezekiel, they have multiple faces. In Isaiah, they're described as seraphim, which whenever they have physical form in uh, scripture and elsewhere in ancient Near Eastern literature, they tend to take the form of a serpent. So as I said to you, you've got these serpent beings, they have six wings. Now here's your next problem. When we have winged creatures on this earth, the wings replace the arms. So a bird doesn't have hands, a bird has wings. But here these creatures have wings and yet he has hands. So if you were thinking that you were getting the picture in your head right, you're probably going to have to change it all over again now. Because he has hands. That's the first strange thing. The second strange thing is this. And I never noticed this until this week. So if you hadn't noticed it either, don't, don't feel bad. But he brings the coal with tongs, yes, from the altar. So these tongs bring the coal from the altar. And you think, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Right? Because you don't want to burn your hands. But yet he picked up the coal with his hands. Look at the text. It says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. So, sorry, the other way around. So he picks up the coal with tongs, right? But then the coal himself is in his hand as he brings it over. 
So why did he pick up the coal with tongs if it wasn't going to burn his hands? The coal itself is not the issue. The issue is the altar. One thing that people have struggled with, I knew you'd like this bit. One thing that people struggle with in this text is that, we see, is that they see here re- the picture of redemption. And what, come on, you must have thought this over the years. What is the one thing that, you, that, is, that is frustratingly, awkwardly missing from this picture when it comes to redemption and atonement? Blood. But you see, the blood is here. The blood is on the altar. And remember where we are in history, that the blood of the lamb has been put on the altar. We've been doing this in Hebrews this morning. That Jesus enters into the holy place and he pours his blood on the altar. And when we read this very morning, Leviticus 16, and we saw the day of atonement, And I will turn there again. This is a double Leviticus day. I know that makes you excited. Leviticus 16, we saw this morning. And what did Aaron do? Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. We spoke about that this morning. Shall make atonement for himself and for his house. That's his family. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before Yahweh. Two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. Listen, there is the blood that goes on the altar in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, but there is also coals that are brought to the presence of God. So here, with these coals, we have something associated with the Day of Atonement and the atoning of sin. And it's no coincidence, of course, that the word in verse 7 is the word atoned. Same word. But I find it fascinating that these creatures, these holy angelic beings are holy in the sense of sinless. They're holy in the sense of separate from us, otherworldly from us. But yet even those holy creatures are covering up their nakedness. For those who weren't here, feet are a euphemism for genitals. They are covering up their nakedness before God. They are covering up their face in the presence of God. And though they are able to hold the coals, when they come to the altar, they use the tongs. They are picking them up from the altar ceremonially as part of the ceremony of cleansing. The altar is the holy place. That's where, at this point historically, that Jesus' blood has been poured out once for all to secure our eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, verse 12 from this morning. Love it when these passages kind of come together. So here we have these coal being taken. Now, we associate the coal with the Day of Atonement, and therefore there is a link to atoning here. But again, this is what you you guys who've been here for recent weeks know this, but this is the twist. This is the twist that that beats Sixth Sense or or anything like that. You know, this this is a total game changer here in that we have seraphim who are the, the, the deliverers of judgment. 
and the deliverer of judgment goes and a fiery serpent goes and takes fire and brings fire and here he comes with the wings covering below the wings covering above the wings flying over and hands reaching forwards with coals coming to isaiah and isaiah says i deserve to be judged my lips are unclean and here comes head-on some coals to apply to his lips that's the judgment he's asked for that's the judgment that he's recognized he's worthy of that's the judgment that is coming and you are expecting you the reader isaiah the the, the person at that moment you're expecting one result and one result only death destruction i am undone i am utterly destroyed that is what you're expecting and so he touches my mouth the coal touches my mouth and then this seraphim this seraphim whose voice has rocked the foundations of the temple says behold this has touched your lips coals from the altar where the blood was poured out this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for covered that's what the day of atonement was about the covering of sin it's all the old testament could accomplish the altar the place of blood the place of sacrifice the coals have come they've touched his lips and that has brought cleansing this is everything that isaiah has been building up to this is what the early chapters were about turn back with me if you would to uh chapter one end of chapter one was just so important you know at the time i i taught it i was like blown away by it it was like wow how have i never seen this before and we keep going back to it and it becomes more and more significant isaiah 1 verse 27 zion shall be redeemed by justice that sums it up that some that that one phrase sums up so much that israel zion is going to be redeemed that god will make them holy that he will pay the price and they will be made holy by justice that there will be judgment that will come and the judgment will redeem them god's holiness is not simply a holiness that brings destruction it's a holiness that brings judgment and it says those in her who repent by righteousness there there is righteousness that will be that will redeem you but rebels and sinners will be broken everybody on this planet is going to be affected by the blood of christ the blood of christ will either atone for our sins or the blood of christ will cry out of our sin and isaiah speaks of this he speaks of there being redemption that comes through this judgment through this justice and this is what is seen here essentially in that isaiah sees the holiness of god he sees god's holiness he sees god's glory he recognizes that he should be judged but he is redeemed by the holiness of god 
this ransom price is paid. And here is the mystery in Isaiah 6. The mystery is, where is the price that has been paid? How is this atonement accomplished? How does this happen? And as Isaiah develops, we're going to see, starting in chapter 7, the story of this king. Beginning with a virgin birth. A king who is raised up, a king who becomes, a, a child who becomes king, a king who becomes a, the righteous one, the righteous one who becomes the suffering servant, and the suffering servant who, who, whose suffering becomes our redemption. The coals are holy and the coals can cleanse because the coals come from the altar where the blood was poured out. And then we have again, finally here, this picture, this little, this little uh, analogy of salvation. It begins with a recognition of sin. Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. The recognition of our sinful state is the beginning of salvation. And before that, the recognition of our sinful state comes from seeing God from God revealing himself to us. We can't see who God is when our eyes are closed. Job said, I, I heard you with my ear. We can go and we can preach the gospel and people can hear with the ear, so to speak, in a Job 42 sense. They can hear with their ear who God is. But we need to see him. We need God to open our eyes so that we can go, I'm done. I'm, I'm screwed. I am worthy of judgment. There, 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 is, there, is, there is nothing that, that I should have other than the, the judgment of God. That is right. That's how it should be. And it is when we acknowledge that, that then the opportunity arises for redemption from the altar, redemption from the blood of the Son. That the fire that should destroy us becomes the fire that purifies us. That the crying out for Christ, the trusting in Christ that we do, that act of faith that brings salvation, that that simply comes from God opening our eyes, from us seeing God. And so Isaiah sees God. God initiates God initiates it, Isaiah sees God, he recognises his, his fate, and God redeems him by his holiness. Isaiah shouldn't be there. The seraphim were supposed to protect the holiness of God. They were supposed to keep unclean things away. Isaiah has been brought into the midst, he shouldn't be there, and the, the seraphim come to render judgment, but the judgment that is rendered to him doesn't destroy him, it makes him holy. These are themes that become so clear to us as Christians. But they're problems, difficulties that Isaiah will unveil, resolve, chapter by chapter, as he goes through. And so with that, we conclude the, the scene of the vision. And Isaiah's response, next time... 
Uh, let me just think for a moment. Is there a next time? Yeah, next week's baptisms, isn't it? So there will be Isaiah in the evening. So next time we will have the calling of Isaiah. If you think that we're going to go a bit quicker now, you're, <laughs> you're, you're uh, strongly mistaken because the next passage we will introduce next time and we will raise some of the problems and issues and then we'll come back to it in a lot of detail in the new year because this passage was so difficult that when it was even translated into Greek, when there were other copies made of this, that it was changed again and again and again by different people because it was so difficult that people just couldn't believe that God had said it. But Isaiah's calling is his response to the vision, his response to salvation, perhaps more accurately. And we will see from him how we should respond. But I simply want to say this, if we, um, if we have been redeemed, then let us be willing to serve God now who has redeemed us. And if we haven't been redeemed, then we just simply pray for God to open our eyes that we might see him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious passage of scripture. May we, uh, may we see you. May those who have never seen have their eyes opened. And may those of us who have seen, may you keep our eyes open day by day. May we not get distracted by the world and the things of the world. May sin lose its gleam. And may we recognise our unworthiness and the grace that is shown to us in our redemption. And may we say, here I am, send me. Amen.